Last week, we looked at the very first disciples who were called by Jesus early in Mark's gospel. We also compared the gospels and their perspectives or their focuses so that we would know that Mark is the most succinct and the most action-packed of the gospel writers. And we looked at only two of the first people who are called because there's just so much to unpack and understanding who these people are that Jesus is assembling to be his inner circle disciples. Simon, Peter, and Andrew were the first two. This was our last week's passage. It's Mark 1, verses 16 through 18. It's short enough. I'm going to read you that. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were auto mechanics. No, that would be fishermen if you have your Bible open to that passage. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And we learned by looking at some of the other gospels and what purposes those gospel writers had and how they compiled their information, there were probably at least two other incidents in which these guys would have come in contact with Jesus prior to this incident. So it might appear that they just left everything at the drop of a net, started to say drop of a hat, but the drop of a net, and left their fishing gear and took off and followed Jesus. I think there was a little bit more to it than that. They had a little bit of time to get to see Jesus and understand what authority and power this man, who was like no other man, had. That still means that it was relatively rapid, however. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I mean, all it takes is one or two good uh, interactions with somebody as powerful as Jesus. And I can imagine somebody would say, this guy is different from anybody I've ever met before. Yes, I'm willing to follow him. Well, then we're going to look at this week's passage and two more guys. This time it's another set of brothers because Andrew and Peter were brothers, as we found out. This time it's James and John. Some actually suspect because they were so close around that area in the northwestern part of the shore of Galilee that these guys were actually in the same fishing business or were at least very close to one another and knew each other well. So there was already some relationship within these first four guys that Jesus called, and I think that's important. It's good to know that Jesus understood that relationships are important, and he's always calling us into relationship, and part of the reason that he does that is because we need each other to get the job done. So when he gets a little bit farther along on that shore of Galilee, it says in verse 19 of Mark 1, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. It's good to know a few things about James and John. They were sons of Zebedee, this guy. He was apparently a fairly successful fisherman because it says here that he actually had hired men. So it wasn't just the family business, it was a family business and they were doing well enough that he had additional workers there too, other employees. And it also, we find out in Mark 3, just a little bit later, we're going to take a quick peek and then jump back here, but we find out that they had a nickname, Sons of Zebedee in the family business, aka the Sons of Thunder. What a great nickname. 
Jesus nicknamed people, and I think it's good to know that when Jesus nicknames you, it's because he sees something in you that you might not even yet see in yourself. A couple of examples of that. Since we know that nicknames can reveal character traits, I won't tell you what my nickname in high school was. Um, Tempted to, but I'm not going to. It's interesting that Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. Hmm. And it says so in Mark 3.17. Well, we don't learn why Jesus gave this nickname to them, but I can assume that it meant either A, they were like their father, because you know they say the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree or the fishing net doesn't fall far from the boat in their instance. And we also understand that it could have meant all three of them were thunderous. I mean, they were fishermen, so they had to kind of be burly and do the stuff that fishermen do. Or it could mean that he was just talking about James and John being thunderous, and maybe Zebedee was a little bit more staid by that time in his age. I'm not sure. We don't really know. I wish sometimes that there was just a little bit more detail, but it gives me more things to write in the margin of my Bible to say, this is another thing I'm going to ask when I get to meet them when I'm out there. And if Zebedee comes up and says, well, hello there, I'll get my answer. So I know that Jesus has this special ability. As the Son of God, he can see people's thoughts, even understand in his spirit what they're thinking. Peter's nickname was the rock. We see in John, one of the other gospels, John 142, he says he knew that he was going to become a rock later after he had been tested or sifted and after he'd been refined. And so he says, and now you're going to be Peter or Cephas, which means the rock. So we know that Jesus sees something sometimes potential in all of us that we wouldn't have even seen in ourselves. Isn't it good to know that we still have potential and that we have somebody who can help us reach that potential? God still does that through the body of Christ, and we're helping each other do that as we edify one another. Well, Nathaniel, or Nathaniel, we've Americanized it. Usually it's I-E-L in America, but then it's A-E-L, Nathaniel. One in whom there is no deceit. That was something that Jesus gave to him. Now, that's a little lengthy for a nickname. Most people wouldn't say, oh, hey, how you doing, one in whom there is no deceit? That's a little, it's, it's easier to say something like Skippy. But that wasn't Nathaniel's character quality. So Jesus gives him this lengthier description. How do we know that? Well, we get this from, from John chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to do so. John 1, starting at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Saying this a lot in the early parts of his uh, discipleship development process, isn't he? Follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, not too far geographically from some of the other fishing places in the northwestern side of Galilee. So all this is within pretty easy walking distance. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. They were so excited. It was like, He's the one. We found him. And then... Rather than saying, oh, goody, let's go meet him, Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And Philip, being smart, doesn't try to argue his way in. He just says, come and see. (laughs) Philip's thinking, okay, just come and see for yourself. If you will come and actually experience this man that I've told you about, all of your questions will be answered. So in verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here, truly, 
is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, well, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Which means that I think Nathanael is starting to get the impression Jesus knows more about him even before he was tipped off by Philip. Not ticked off, but tipped off by Philip. And then, verse 49, Nathanael declared, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Interesting in Mark's Gospel how Nathanael, the same one who was very bluntly honest and saying, Nazareth, <laughs> he's the one who immediately gets to the point and says, oh, I get it. I know who you are. He identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Pretty incredible, isn't it? But Jesus saw something in him and said, you're a man with no guile. You're not deceitful. What, what you see in Nathanael is what you get because he's honest. And honesty is a good trait. And Jesus wanted to transform that honesty trait into something that would be beneficial for the gospel and for the kingdom's sake. Well, we also see another time when Jesus can see into people's hearts. And we're going to get there soon enough, so I'm going to just capsulize it. I illustrate with this story so often that you probably have it down by now. It's the man who was let down through the roof because his friends wanted to get the paralytic friend down into Jesus' presence. Couldn't get him through the door because the crowd was all around the house. So in Mark 2, starting at verse 6, we read, Now some teachers of the law, these are the religious perumphorumps, <laughs> they were sitting around thinking to themselves, important, that this is the way it's worded, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's the right question, by the way. And then in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So Mark's gospel is showing us right off the bat that Jesus clearly knows people inside and out. And if he knows people well enough to go pick these crazy fishermen off of the seashore, off the lake of Galilee, he knows that they've got the potential and he's going to help bring that potential out of them. Where do we see this thunderous behavior? Well, let's look at one of these. This one incident is when they're with the other disciples, they're on their way through Samaria, and they're heading back toward Jerusalem. Not surprisingly, they could not find any accommodations there. There were no Motel 6s, there weren't any uh, La Quintas, uh, you know, it just wasn't happening there. And it was sort of customary in that part of the world for people to extend some hospitality to traveling strangers, and so they might have a room in the back or something. So they started asking them, can we find some accommodations here? And so, where are you guys going, basically? I'm paraphrasing here. Oh, we're going to Jerusalem. No room for you. <laughs> oh, you're going to Jerusalem? No room for you. You see, there's some animosity. We're probably aware of that if you've read through the New Testament much at all. Samaritans didn't get along with Jews and vice versa. They're just bad blood between those two groups of people, and they weren't going to do that. So, in response to getting the cold shoulder, James says to John, or James and John ask, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? He says in Luke 9.54. They're such tender-hearted guys, aren't they? <laughs> now, my impish nature 
reads things into this because sometimes I'm wondering if I'm standing there with them on this road and I'm listening to this stuff, did they do that just to freak out the Samaritans because they didn't know that Jesus could do that yet? How early in this, you know, were, were they just saying it like a spoof? Hey, you want to call down some fire from heaven, Lord? Just to watch their reaction. Or because this is in a different gospel and it's farther into the gospel, maybe they've seen some miracles first. Very possible. So it's quite possible that they really did know that Jesus was capable of doing that sort of thing and thinking, hey, we're walking around with the guy who's got magic in his fingers. He could do that if he wants to. And so he does that. And does Jesus say, boys? It says he rebukes them. And it doesn't say how he rebukes them. I don't know. I, man, I really wish sometimes they would write these extra details. Like, did he say, sparky one, sparky two, chill out? That's not nice. Or did he just simply look at them with the look and go, and then they got it. I don't know how he rebuked them, but we know that he rebuked them. Somehow or other, we see that thunderous behavior, that quick to anger sort of uh, temperament in James and John. And we see it in a couple of different places. I'm very glad that we don't ever see that kind of behavior in human beings in our day. Isn't it good that we have all figured out how to get along nicely with one another? And that on social media, all we read is kind things that people say to one another. Yeah. I think maybe we still have a few things that we could learn from thunderous behavior like that. Maybe a couple. We've learned, I've learned some new phrases in the last two years, in fact. There's so much that I still need to learn, but I've been learning about phrases like um, echo chambers, social media algorithms, hive minds, ideological tribes, divisive antisocial responses. And we've experienced some of this stuff, haven't we, in the last couple of years? And so if somebody in one echo chamber, using the current uh, terminology, of course, because I'm getting really hip, <laughs> the echo chamber or tribe hears somebody else that's saying something on a post that differs with their opinion about that because they're coming from a different echo chamber or a different tribe, then instead of going over to one another's houses and saying, let's have coffee together and discuss why you believe that. Instead, they fire off some antisocial response that further divides and pushes people deeper into their antisocial tribes until we're the most divisive country I've ever seen. I've never seen America this divisive in my all-born put-togethers. And yet, fortunately, we can see that because of Christ coming into people's lives and changing the atmosphere, he can change the world because we can change the atmosphere of the people we come in contact with as believers in Christ. As he did with James and John, as, as we see the character arc through them. We can be the change agent. We can be the people that catch ourselves and hit the delete button before we fire off that thing that we had so wonderfully crafted. Or we can be the ones to say, I find it interesting that you would believe that. Let's have coffee. Can we talk about that and actually listen before seeking to be understood? We seek to understand. These things are Christ-like traits. And they are things that I think as we become thunderous, we need to understand that Christ can transform our spirits just like he transformed James and John. Here's another James, and we can get them confused because there were two different James in the disciples. And there was James the greater and James the lesser when you start looking them up on the interweb. 
And all these other people, there was James the son of Alphaeus, and then there's this one, James the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. But then there's also the half-brother of Jesus, not a part of this other group, and he's the one who became finally a believer even though he grew up with Jesus, which is why he didn't want to believe or be a believer at first because he's thinking, it's my kid brother, what are you talking about? Or my older brother, Jesus came first. And so he's the one who became the leader in the church of Jerusalem after the resurrection and when the church was starting to just really take off, and there was persecution starting to arise. And James is somebody who writes, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh, how often I have needed to remind myself of this verse, especially in the last two years. Because human anger, says James, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So this James could have really informed the other James back before the other James had his character arc. I don't know how long it took this James to get it, but he finally got it, and he wrote that for us, which is great. And that is something, fortunately, that James and John, uh, Zebedee's kids, finally got. Well, we also notice something that I think is very intriguing, and it's important for us as believers, because if we are part of the family of God, we too are his disciples now. We're his pupils. We're growing to be more like him. He prayed for his disciples. Can you imagine Jesus praying for us? He did that just a short time before he was arrested, in fact, in John 17, 21 through, 30, or through 23. John 17, 21 through 23. He says this, I pray that they, in fact, if you wanted to do what I did, I underlined every time they or them came up in the next couple of verses, and I counted seven in my translation, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, ah, okay, so now we're getting some context. He's praying to the Father, and he says, you and I are one, this is Jesus, you and I are one, so that they can be one like us. May they experience such perfect unity so that, and here's that very big purpose word, when you see that in the middle of something like that, it says, this is the purpose that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Whoa, let me read that last part again. If you're in unity with one another so that I am in them just like you are in me, we're connected, we're really having this agape love for one another, we're communing with one another on a deep level, then the world is going to see that and they're going to experience God too. How important is that unity? And then, this is the last part that blows me away. And then, they'll know not only that you sent me, this is Jesus saying, that God sent me into the world, and that you love them as much as you love me. Whoa. God loves me that much? That's mind-blowing. That's life-changing. And Jesus prays that for them just before he goes to his death to lay his life down willingly for lost sinners and people who didn't deserve it. And he's trying to show them that's the kind of love I'm talking about. And that's what brings about the kind of unity that will draw a watching world to want what we have. I can't help but wonder, 
I can't help but wonder. I know it's happened to me, but I wonder if some other people have experienced this in the last couple of years. If maybe some of the modern day disciples have experienced some of those rebukes like Jesus had to do for James and John. Some of those convictions of the Spirit. Most often, I think, through the Word. That's how God the Holy Spirit tends to speak to me the loudest and the most personally, because I'll be reading something, even though I've been wanting to get revenge, and I have these great revenge fantasies that I stay up in my mind thinking, ooh, I'm going to get that person so good. And then I read something like this, or something like James says, and God's Holy Spirit goes, yeah, that's not the right approach. And I start to feel that conviction in my spirit, and he starts to work on me again. Don't you suppose that we've all needed that a little bit more often? lately. And I'm grateful that God loves us enough to continue to give his conviction to us so that we can continue to start learning what unity looks like so that the watching world can be drawn to God. That's one reason why I'm really excited about what God's going to do in this small congregation to help resettle a family that came here under dire circumstances. And I'm watching to see how God's going to start doing that, but I'm confident that through a group this size, he can do that. Well, James and John certainly needed that lesson because early in their walk, they were the bring down the fire types of guys. Fortunately, we have enough information in Scripture to know that they finally did get it. But here's another pre-transformation incident just so that you'll get to know what they were like. This is one that I don't know if they asked their mother to go to Jesus or if she just did it on their behalf, being the good Jewish mother that mothers can be. Sometimes uh, in plays and drama, they would call them the stage moms. You know what I'm talking about. The moms that are going to stand up for their kids and make sure that they're getting into the limelight. You know, well, my kid is in sports. Why are you not playing my kid on the field as often? He's a good player. You should put him out there. You know, it's that kind of attitude that we get from James and John's mom. She goes to Jesus, has each of the other boys with her, maybe left ear on this one and the right ear on the other one, and brings them to Jesus. And she's asking Jesus on their behalf, Jesus, I'm going to ask you a favor. Would you place one of my boys at your left hand and one at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? It's like, they're good boys. They're deserving. They're smart. They're fast learners. They've got a great resume. They're good fishermen. And you should put them in your cabinet when you become king. That's kind of what this lady is saying. And so Jesus turns the mom's request into a teachable moment. And he says to them, not their mother, he says to them, uh, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And if they were smart, they would have hit time out for just a minute and said, I'm not sure. What is the cup that you're about to drink? But instead they're going, yup. Yes, indeedy, we sure are. Yeah. And he says, no, no, you're really not. Because the cup that he was referring to was the cup of suffering and ultimately death. And then later in Matthew's gospel, it's only a few verses later, Jesus would tell his disciples. This is in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, this section. Whoever wants to become prominent or a leader among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave, just as... The Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Now, how do you think that the request of James and John's mom 
was uh, received by the other disciples. Do you think they were really tickled about that? And saying, oh no, James and John, they're great. Yeah, sure, I would have voted for him for class president. Let's put them in there. No, it created some contention. And there are a couple of times when we can see that in the rest of the Gospels. One time Jesus comes down, there are good things happening, and what are they doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. And he's like, ah, oh, boys, boys, boys. Well, I don't know why they felt like they needed that higher level of honor. Maybe it was because they were the, some of the first to be called to become some of the apostles. I don't know. But then Andrew and Peter could have said, no, we were first. <laughs> or maybe it was because Jesus did involve them in some very special ministry events, inviting them into the very room where Jairus' daughter was healed and raised up from the dead, Mark 5, 37. Or the time he invited them all the way up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where they got to be present with God's glory. See, Elijah, Moses, Jesus. They heard Jesus uh, affirmed by the Father's voice. They're thinking, we're in the inner circle, man. We got a shoe in. Of course, we're the senior members. We've been at these special places. Why not us? It should be us. Whatever the reasons, James and John wanted to be first in line, and they wanted the positions of prominence. Sad true story, modern-day example. I know a, another pastor I know him quite well. He's in another state. You don't know him, and you don't know which state he's in. So I can say this and be generic and not hurt anybody's feelings. <laughs> but he was telling me that he, a few years ago, was shepherding a church not much larger than our church is now, slightly larger, in this other state. And that church had come in under the umbrella of a large church in their region because they thought that by being another satellite of that larger church, they could do collectively what they could not do by themselves. So they thought there were enough benefits to that that it would be a helpful thing to do. But then he and a couple of their church leaders went down to a conference where the senior pastor of that large, successful church was speaking. And the guy said to these minion pastors, I am the man, and you are the fans. And I said, you're kidding, right? I said, he was doing that as a joke, right? And then he was going to say, no, I'm kidding you. And then he got up and washed your feet or something to show them. He says, no, he was serious. He said, you got to be kidding. He said, that's what I said. He said, and then he, he repeated that phrase several times in his talk to the rest of us lowly pastors out there. And he even went on to brag by saying, my name appears in the list of the top 10 public speakers in evangelical churches in America today. That's why... I'm the man, and you are the fans. Needless to say, that church and their leadership opted out of that relationship with the big church very shortly after that conference. Because I would think, that doesn't sound anything at all like the kind of servant leadership that Jesus is talking about and trying to show James and John and the rest of the disciples when he says, I didn't even come to be served. I came to serve and to lay my life down. Well, early in their relationship with Jesus, James and John had not grasped that yet, but they would. They would see Christ demonstrating this kind of servant leadership, and they would see it most poignantly on the cross. So I'm grateful that we have the whole picture, because then we don't have to leave James and John as the call fire down from heaven kind of guys. Well, what happened to James and John? James was the very first apostle to lose his life. The very first. 
And it says so right there in Acts 12, about that time, meaning when the church was starting to really grow and uh, there was a lot more persecution happening, especially because of King Herod. This translation, the NLT, actually says King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. And he had the apostle James, John's brother, he got specifics so we know which James, killed with a sword. Some commentators say that the method of killing somebody with a sword back there was gruesome because it was beheading. So the first martyr was James. John, his brother, ironically lived the longest. He lived and was the only one to die of natural causes, in fact. He died somewhere around 100 A.D., which means, of course, that that would have been only about 70 years beyond, maybe less than 70 years beyond when Jesus was crucified. And he was exiled onto the Isle of Patmos, and we have some of his writings because of this wonderful John the Beloved, John the Apostle, John who, even though he was trying to call down fire from heaven to get rid of those Samaritans, became known as the Apostle of Love. Interesting, isn't it? The Apostle of Love. Take this passage, for example, in 1 John 2, 9 and 10, that this apostle wrote. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Sounds like he's come a long way from being the call down the fire guy. Big difference. It's transformation. And that transformation is available to every single one of us today. Let me read you a true story out of Andy Stanley's book called It Came From Within. Good book title. I like that. He talks about a guy who could have fit in well with James and John, especially when you understand a little bit more of his story. Let me read this to you so I get it right. This is Andy, Pastor Andy, writing this. He says, I met a guy named Joe at Starbucks. He was sitting in one of those overstuffed chairs with headphones on and a scowl that said, don't anybody come near me. Everything about his countenance and his posture communicated anger. So when I saw him, I avoided eye contact and I went on about my business. And as I was waiting for my drink, it's a soy latte by the way, makes me like Andy even more. Joe approached me and he said, aren't you Andy? He says, at that moment, I wasn't sure if I should be Andy or not. And the guy said, somebody gave me one of your CDs, meaning from the church where he was a preacher. And he said, I've been listening to it, but I've got to tell you, I just have a real problem with God and the church too, for that matter. Well, it turns out that Andy decided to do some listening rather than just launching into a sermon. And as he listened, he found this out. He said, Joe had been through two difficult divorces. His first wife had been through some terrible trauma as a child and was never able to actually face that trauma and work through it. So after 30 years of marriage, 30 years, the memories of her childhood trauma surfaced and eroded that marriage and they ended in a terrible divorce. His ex-wife then, even more tragically, passed away two years after that. And then he got remarried, Joe did. But after three years, unfortunately, this second marriage also ended in divorce. So Joe was lonely. He was self-proclaimed recovering alcoholic. 
There was no evidence of the existence of God as far as Joe could see. So, Andy says, I got Joe's phone number. I connected him with one of our pastors named John Woodall. John called Joe and met him for coffee, and they became pretty good friends. That was the last I saw of Joe for a while. Three months later, I was sitting at the same Starbucks, this time talking to a student pastor from another church in our area, when in walks Joe. When he saw me, he headed straight for my table. The first thing I noticed was he was smiling this time. The second thing I noticed was that he was carrying a Bible and a notebook and a book on marriage. Marriage. I'm getting married next week, Joe says. And he goes, I wasn't sure what to think. Uh, to whom? I asked. To Susan. He's to Susan. Oh, the ex-wife? The one that you recently... Yeah. He says, I've been meeting with your pastor friend, with John, and John's going to do the wedding for us. I'm getting married to my ex-wife. Andy said he was just flabbergasted. Pastor John, of course, had helped a lot, to be sure, but his involvement in Joe's life and the good questions that led him to the answers in Scripture got Joe to the point where he could actually start examining the places in his own life that he needed to hand over to the Lord. And it was the Spirit that was doing the transformation in Joe's life. It wasn't too long after Joe's transformation that Susan also placed her faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is still inviting people to involve themselves in his kingdom work and to be transformed like James and John, guys like Joe, guys like us who have been through pandemics, everybody who can turn themselves over to a loving God who wants to give our life purpose and meaning and joy to others so that we can express the unity together that would draw people to the God who brings about that kind of unity. I want to be a part of that, and I pray that you will want to be as well. Let's pray. God, our Father, I am really grateful that the Word contains some very honest looks at real people. And they're not just statues of saints scattered throughout the pages, but that they're real people like us, and they've seen some real difficulties. They've been through a lot. And yet we can also see that transformation that happens when the Holy Spirit really gets involved in somebody's life and they allow the transformation to happen. And I'm praying for this body of Christ that you will speak to each one of us at every level of our daily walk with you, reminding us where we need to lay down our lives at the foot of the cross, pick up our cross daily, die to self and live for you knowing that our life is purposeful and that we are change agents in the world so that people can see true love, sacrificial love, and sacrificial leadership, not one-upmanship and not I'm right and you're wrong, but how can I serve you? Because even your son, Jesus, laid down his life to show us that he didn't come to be served but to serve and to purchase our salvation what he did for us on the cross. Thank you for that. Thanks for the gospel, for the power of this gospel that still changes lives today. May we be agents of that gospel in our words and actions. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.